0: Thank you team for leading us so well and faithfully this morning. Well good morning everybody. It is good to be in front of y'all. It is good to be seen by y'all and it is good to have all my hair. Now that's not not a joke to anybody who is uh, uh, maybe lacking a little bit up top. Um, that is, in fact, uh, because I do I do many things when I write out my sermons and prepare them. I oftentimes multitask, and I'll come up here and tinker around with things and go over my notes and try to prepare. And uh, last night, um, while going over my notes, I decided to multitask and cut my own hair, which is what I do normally. I mean, I figure with this little of it, it's hard to mess up. And so, um, uh, so I'm so I'm reading over my notes and I'm getting ready to cut my hair, and I. Get to kind of a, a, a particular part where I was really paying attention to the words and kind of stumbled a little bit when I turned on my razor. And I literally got inches from my head before I realized, oh, I didn't put a guard on this thing. And so I almost pulled a Hiram here and I was going to be clean, clean up top. Uh, so that, so that, that was a, uh, a nice deliverance. Um, so again, it's good to be in front of you guys and it's good to have all my hair because <laughs> at about 1030 last night, I wasn't so sure. So Uh, Again, thank you for joining us. Uh, We are going to be uh, continuing our study actually in the book of John. If you're here last week, we took uh, a week off to get to celebrate the close of our VBS with our kids, Uh, but now we're back at it and we're going to be jumping back into the book of John, uh, this time starting in chapter five. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up or turn them on. Uh, We're going to be reading from the ESV version this morning. Um, Again, kind of because we took a little bit of a break and as always, it's a good reminder. um, The main... Main message of the book of God, John is exactly what we just sung. Uh, and it is just simply that John's trying to, to convince all of us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's the main message of the book of John. And specifically with that message, he has a, a purpose that he wants to wants everybody in his original audience and all of us as readers uh, to clearly get. And that was again, we, we summarized those with three words. It was Jesus, belief, and life. Uh, Jesus, so that you would see the miracles that he did. You would see who he is and the power that he has. And so naturally then in response, uh, you would believe. And in reward for that belief, you'd be granted life. Again, in uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, this is what he states as his purpose statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the books. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So this is the threefold purpose, that we would see who Jesus is, respond in belief, and have life. Now, leading up to chapter 5, this is the pattern we've seen played out over and over and over again. More specifically, we've seen some characters, some encounters with Jesus from different people uh, that respond along these same lines. We have Nicodemus coming to him at night. Uh, we looked at John the Baptist and his witness and testimony. Uh, we had the woman at the well. Uh, and then just just two weeks ago, uh, right before in the last chapter, we had the official whose son is healed. Uh, and this morning, uh, whereas last two weeks ago we saw Jesus' power demonstrated to heal from afar, today we're going to see his power demonstrated to heal right there in his presence, much, much closer in proximity. Um, so I'm going to do this, I'm going to read the entirety of, the, of uh, our section this morning so that we can uh, uh, write our minds around God's word, and, uh, and I'm going to invite you um, actually to stand in reverency of God's word, uh, and I'm going to start with a prayer, and I'm going to close with a prayer. This is a prayer that is uh, a writ prayer, uh, or a written prayer, um, borrowed, that is actually probably being prayed uh, in many more Reformed churches all across, uh, all across the United States today, and so uh, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Father open our eyes, gracious Lord, as we turn to your word. We long to know you, to understand life, and to be changed. Examine us, Lord, by the floodlight of your truth. Amen. Starting in John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind lame and paralyzed one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time he said to him do you want to be healed the sick man answered him sir i have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while i'm going another steps in before me jesus said to him get up take your bed and walk and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that said this to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know uh, who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, and that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told Jesus that, and that, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, "My Father is working until now, I am working." This was why the Jews were seeking, to kill, seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself an equal with God. Let's pray again, Father, may the word that we have just read, Lord, be planted deeply in our minds and in our hearts. Help us not to walk away and forget it, but to meditate on it and obey it. And so, built our lives upon the rock that is your truth. Amen. Y'all go ahead and be seated. Now, for many of us, this is probably a familiar message, uh, or at least a familiar story that we have come to about the man who is uh, a, a paraplegic. He does no use of his legs. He's lame, and he's sitting by the pool um, waiting to be healed, and Jesus comes up and provides that same healing. Um, but I hope this morning we're going to take a little bit, dive into maybe some history, some setting of the context, so that we can maybe see this story uh, in a little bit more of its grandeur. I think, as John intends it, uh, to really highlight who Jesus is uh, and the things that he accomplishes. Uh, because first, I think, in to, to Get our minds right about the setting here. Um, this pool uh, was actually, for most of modern history, was actually unknown. We didn't know where it was, uh, even though it has some very specific uh, instructions about its location and some very descri- specific descriptions about what was in it. Uh, there was still no evidence of it all the way up until about the uh, late uh, 19th century. And in fact, in about 1888, uh, they were doing they were doing some uh, construction work. Uh, And on a church that was nearby and they're having to excavate some things and like they do in Israel because there's so much around there of ancient artifacts they are excavating very very carefully and lo and behold they get down and they find these five colonnades in this pool exactly where John said it exactly where uh, the, the Bible indicates that this pool was. And so uh, even though it was not necessarily known in in modern history for a long time, this certainly, this pool was well known uh, in ancient history. Um, actually, our first uh, mention of this pool in the Bible comes way back in 2 Kings. In fact, in chapter 18, verse 17, um, we have the king of Assyria, uh, which is a guy named uh, Sennacherib. This is Sennacherib. He is, uh, he is he's, he's king. He's going after Judah. He wants to overthrow them. So he sends this great army, which is a, quite an understatement. It's about 180,000 soldiers, massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem. And the Bible says, and when they uh, went up, they came to Jerusalem, and when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool. And this is the pools of Bethesda, which is on the highway of the washer's field. Now, amazingly, in history, in that story, uh, with all those men, he doesn't take Judah. He doesn't overthrow King Hezekiah. The angel of the Lord shows up and slaughters them in the night uh, and delivers them from, uh, from that captivity. Um, and, but even though we're, we're where I guess here, where the king of Assyria fails, a mere couple hundred years later, we have this guy, Alexander the Great, he does not fail. Um, in fact, he takes it from the Persians and, uh, and overthrows all of, all of Judah and places it under his influence and his rule. And under his influence and his rule, some of the things that he tried to do was to, to shape the culture, to shape the infrastructure, to shape how people actually functioned and operated so that it would all focus in on him as ruler. Um, so while in rule, he introduced several things to uh, the land of Judah and to the people, and one of which was uh, the worship of many other gods. And one of the gods that he introduced was a guy named Eclepius. Now, Eclepius uh, is the god of healing. You can see a bronze little figurine of him. He's got a staff with the uh, snake coming around the bottom. It takes uh, a lot of our, our modern cues from medicine come from uh, some symbolism that Eclepius represents. Now, Eclepius was... Um, the son of Apollo, the illegitimate son of Apollo, uh, according to legend, and his mother, because of his illegitimacies, is embarrassed or ashamed of him, so she uh, leaves him out uh, as a child uh, on his own, uh, and so he's raised actually um, by a uh, dog and by a goat, and so naturally this happy, uh, happy family, of course, would lead him to then become the god of healing, because that 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 makes sense, right? No. Um, but, but all the same, for about the next 400-ish years, depending on the political uh, kind of time and, and who's ruling, uh, the Pool of Bethesda uh, becomes a worship place um, for the god uh, of healing, this god Eclepius. And so it becomes what is known as an ecleptorium. This is an ecleptorium. It was instead of going to the temple to worship Eclepius, you went to an ecleptorium to try to seek his favor and to gain his blessing of healing. Now what happened at an ecleptorium is there's uh, many priests who are priests of Eclepius who are there, and they are there uh, to administer to the people who are sick. Now you may think this is pretty a noble job, but it's actually um, was a very lucrative, very self-satisfying job to be a priest of Eclepius, um, because essentially you had uh, all your fingers and everything that went on, and so you orchestrated how you could get paid by every little process and step. Uh, And so they actually, these priests ran hostels right next to the pool. Um, Actually, interesting enough, where we get our word hospital comes from the Greek word for their hostel. Uh, And they were running these hostels, and if you were sick, you would go and you'd pay them to stay in their hostel. And then in the morning time, uh, when it was time to get your treatment, uh, you would arise and you would go from the hostel down to the pool. And you would sit in the pool onto the side under these stoa, under these covered awnings in the shade. Um, That's what these colonnades are for, these covered awnings, and you would relax there and you would wait uh, for the time of healing. And the priest would mark the time of healing by going up to the aquifer, right, at the upper pool, and they would turn it on. And when the upper pool filled and overflowed, it would go into the lower pool, causing a stirring of the water. Uh, And then it was that stirring of the water that marked the beginning of the healing process. And so then all these patrons who have paid to stay at the hostel and are showing up that morning then would take, no kidding, would then take their hallucinogenic drugs, often, again, probably supplied by the priests so that they could make money from it. Uh, They would take their hallucinogenic drugs, and then when they were just well gone, high as a kite, uh, they would walk down into the water, and they would wade across between about maybe chest and and, uh, waist-high water. And the whole time while walking across there's these brick structures up above, and there's these uh, outposts that these priests would be lined up all around them and above them, and even meeting them at the end. Uh, and they would be chanting a repetitive thing um, in Hebrew, basically a proclamation over them Hagias Genesi. They would say it over and over again Hagias Genesi, Hagias Genesi. You can almost hear like the uh, um, mystical kind of tone that that would take, and especially if you're just. Half-baked, you can imagine. Hygias genocide. That, that would seem really powerful and very, very strong, right? Hygieus uh, genocide in Greek, by the way, uh, basically means to become whole or to be made well. Right? So they'd be saying, you are well, you're better, you're good now, right? Uh, and this would be what the priests would proclaim to them over and over again. Uh, and, then what, and then hopefully they would then emerge from the pool, be healed of all their afflictions, and would be able to go on from their day. This is where uh, we meet our man in our story. Our sick man is here, here in this escleptorium, a place f- filled with the worship and the provision asking from a Greek God to care and to heal for them. And so this, again, is where we meet our man. So let's jump back into the text, and um, I want to make a couple observations that I think is, is, will be helpful for us for our application. Back in verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonies. In these lay a multitude of inv- invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been there for thirty eight years. Now, I'll stop again, and I apologize, I'll make a little bit more of a technical aside, but I don't want to um, push straight through this without at least making mention of it, uh, just in case it would be drawing or confusing, because if you notice here, if you're counting or following along with your verse marks and the ESV as we're reading, it goes one, and then naturally two, and then three, and then it skips four straight into five, uh, you may think, ah, what, what's going on? This isn't, this isn't a Monty Python moment, you know, the one, two, five, three, sir. Oh, oh, you know, this isn't, this isn't John just messing up on numbering. Uh, in fact, the original manuscripts didn't have numbering on that. That was added much later. Um, but if you're reading, again, like us in the ESV or in the NIV or in the NASB or a lot of the modern translations, there's no record of verse four. If it's in there, maybe it's down there as like a footnote or as an aside, um, or, But if you are reading in the um, authorized King James Version, it is there. Verse 4 is put into the text. Uh, so I want to read it because, again, I want to make comments a little bit about what's going on. Verse 4 in the King James Version says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the waters. And whoever stepped in first after stirring of the waters was made well of whatever disease he had. So you may ask, well, so why, why is this omitted in the ESV? Or why is this omitted in most modern translations? A um, simple, simple reason is because it's not found actually in the oldest of manuscripts that we have. A um, little comment on textual criticism, um, but textual criticism is the study of, of all taking all the manuscripts, because we don't have any autographs, we don't have any original copies uh, in the Greek of the New Testament, but we have tons and tons of manuscripts about this. Actually, we have, um, uh, I one to described as an embarrassingly rich amount of manuscripts. because For the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts and portions of manuscripts in which we can compare. This is original writing. Um, And for ancient documents, for ancient sources, uh, this is unheard of. There's nothing that comes close to the amount of the documents that are there. Um, and and Chris was gonna expound on this a little bit more when we get to chapter eight, um, but uh, simple, simplest to put is that uh, oftentimes in the manuscripts, now the scribes would make um, side annotations, little notes on the side to help maybe try to communicate something, or if they thought something was missing, they would kind of put it on the sides, and sometimes uh, those side comments kind of get thrown into the text with markings or indications around them to let you know it's in an aside. and so naturally being copied again sometimes those are left left off, and it was just written right in uh, to the original text. This is likely what's going on here, and sometimes some scribe makes a little comment off to the side to help give the reader an understanding of, of maybe what's going on. I think it's because of how verse seven reads um, when he speaks um, when he speaks, and back to Jesus. With no context before, verse seven kind of seems like an abrupt wait. What is he talking about? How is he doing it? And so likely, uh, I think a scribe just kind of wrote in this little bit of a lore or a little bit of, of legend that was associated with it so that we would understand that or read it a little bit more clearly. Um, and, and again, uh, we'll get to this when we talk more about the reliability. Don't, uh, if this unsettles you, don't, don't worry. This is why textual criticism uh, do what they do. Um, this is why they, they study and they, and they, and they pore over these documents to try to get as close as they can. And even secular text criticists um, rate the Bible with a 99.5%, 0.4 to 0.6, depending on who you read, uh, percent accuracy. And even the 0.5% that they still are like, oh, we're not so sure about that. None of that has theological bearing. A lot of it is just in little nuances and in differences of words. Um, and so here we, we clearly have this, this kind of aside that's kind of thrown in there. Um, and in and, and all actuality, maybe, I mean, we don't know. It's not there. Maybe this is real. Maybe this is exactly um, what is going on. Maybe an angel does really go down in seasons and stir the waters, and the first one in it is healed. Um, you know, maybe Jesus is walking along up to Jerusalem, and he's like, you know what? It's been like, man, it's been like 30-something years since I hung out with that Gabriel, that guy. He was a good angel. I really liked him. Hey, wait, today's Saturday. Oh, he's probably, at, he's probably at Bethesda healing somebody. I'm gonna go say hi to Gabe. Say, hey, who are you gonna heal today? I mean, maybe this is the case. Maybe this is the setting of it. Um, but again, it's, it's probably unlikely. It's probably that uh, the, the scribe at the time uh, was making a comment on the Jewish synchronization uh, where they were taking the worship of God and the worship of Eclepius and trying to merge it together into one statement. Uh, and so again, that's why it's not there. Um, but even in its presence or not presence, we still clearly get um, a presentation here where John is trying to highlight some key aspects, some key observations about Jesus. uh, So that again, once those are observed, belief can happen and life can be granted. And so let's continue in our text, uh, again, jumping back in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps in before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Three observations I want to make um, about Jesus here. And I think John is trying to highlight uh, these these important characteristics of us seeing who Jesus is. The first one of these is Jesus' incomparable knowledge. Not to be compared to anyone else. The amount of knowledge, the sovereignty, and complete understanding of knowledge that Jesus has is evident here in this passage. Again, in verse 6, when Jesus saw him laying there and knew, he knows all that, that he had been there a long time. He knows this man. He knows where he was. He didn't have to go to this pool, but he knew this man was going to be there, similar to the woman at the well. He goes to him. He knows where he was. He knew what was wrong with him. He knew how long it had been, and he knew what this guy needs. He knows everything. I'm going to stop and reflect a little bit on uh, there's something so beautiful about having a Savior who knows everything about us who knows all things. Something, being, something beautiful about being known by Jesus. He knows exactly who you are. Something beautiful and also sometimes terrifying, but what is, com- what is comforting to the terror is not only does he know exactly who you are, he knows exactly what you need. This makes the gifts that Jesus provides for us all the more special and beautiful because he knows us and he knows what we need. Actually, Chris, uh, Pastor Chris has on his website uh, a couple articles about good gift giving. Um, if you've if you got a, an anniversary or a uh, birthday coming up with a loved one, you may wanna go check those out. He tries to list some points about what makes a good gift and his number one thing that he states uh, makes a good gift is that it communicates that you know something about the person. You have knowledge of them. Um, This is reflective, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about an exercise that uh, our staff does periodically with the holidays and um, through various team-building times. We get uh, these assignments where we'll get given a random name of somebody else on staff. Uh, and then we'll have to buy them a gift, normally within under a dollar amount or uh, within a certain theme, and it has to communicate something about them. Uh, and then we present that to them and have a good time trying to guess who, who it is for and all those things. Well, One year, um, uh, Elizabeth uh, Smith drew my name, uh, and the theme that year was we were supposed to get t-shirts for everybody. Uh, and so she got me this t-shirt. It might be hard to read. It says, I've never been held hostage, but I have been in a group text. And you might be thinking like, "Ah, oh, that's cute or kind of clever. But if you knew me... That's a great shirt. <laughs> that was a very good gift. When she showed it, everybody knew it. Says the man who's never sent an emoji in his life. There is concepts of social texting that I do not get or understand and am baffled oftentimes in the whole network of how it plays out, especially in group texting. Uh, but there was something special about it because she knew me. Actually, even just recently, a matter of a couple months ago, we had another assignment where we would go into a mall and spend less than $20 on the person. And uh, Bryn Starnes actually got my name then. And she got me a, a couple things under $20 that added up. Uh, the first thing that she presented to me uh, was a pair of safety glasses uh, and ear protections. And she had said, and that's because Paul inspires us uh, to you know, be so safe in the workplace and in life and all the things. And there's a couple of y'all chuckling. And why you are not all chuckling is because again you probably don't know me. There would be great irony in that gift because that's unfortunately probably not the case. Hence why uh, John Redfern has a number of stories here uh, about <laughs> you know, life-threatening pursuits. Uh, but we've, we're still here together. Uh, the second thing that she gave me was actually a uh, uh, was actually a flashlight. This little handheld LED flashlight, and uh, and she actually um, she gave it to me, and she communicated a, a very very sweet, um, very very uh, yeah, endearing kind of um, uh, comment to my life. And I won't go get into too much of the comment because that seems a little bit self serving. But why she was able to do that, why she was able to take something like as silly as a little flashlight and turn it literally as a gift to me into something that I greatly treasure, not because of it being a great flashlight, because it's a reminder of some truth that she spoke to me, um, was because Brynn actually knows me longer than she's worked here. She used to work for me when I was in outdoor education. And through all of that time, many, many years of knowing each other, um, she knew specific things that were true about me. And thus, she was able to say, this gift applies to those truths, and I want you to remember that. And it was very endearing. And again, why these gifts mean so much um, was because it came from a person who knew me. There's something just sweet about being known and in that knowledge of what, who we are and what we need being given a gift. I think this is why uh, the gifts of Jesus are so sweet. I think this is why the trials we face are so bearable. I think this is why the fate we have is so secure because Jesus knows us and knows what he needs, what we need, and he provides So we have, again, we have Jesus's incomparable knowledge. The second thing that uh, I think John wants us to get is that he wants to present Jesus with with his impressive compassion. Not just a mild sense of compassion, but a, a, a stand down, should stop you in your tracks, amount of compassion that Jesus gives. Again, in verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This is a fascinating question. Fascinating question, especially in the original Greek. Um, does this man, do you want to be healed, the paraplegic? There's not a lot we know about the paraplegic. There's a couple things from the text. We know that he's a Jewish man because later in verse 14, he's in the temple. Um, and this is important. This is important context. That he's a Jewish man, um, not in the temple, but in this pool, in this pool, not seeking God's healing, but seeking this Greek God. Clepias to heal him. know, it may not be so bad against the guy. It may be more of a condemnation of uh, maybe the Jews or the church. Uh, it may be that this guy was at the temple and couldn't make a living for himself. Nobody was providing for him as he was begging. Uh, and so he left that area and went to seek help to beg amongst the Gentiles, the, the heathens who were going and worshiping Eclepius. That would be a condemnation of the church and, um, and, and our prayer, God forbid, that our church ever is that when we see one of ours and within our fold in legitimate need and we turn them away to say, go have help somewhere else. But that's a sermon for another time. Um, more likely, it is probably that this guy has for, forgotten God. He said, you know, I've, I did that. I, I stay, stayed at the temple gate. I tried to beg and God didn't heal me. So I forget God. I'm gonna to go to any other source that I can. This Eclepius, I'm gonna to go to him. I'm gonna see if he can heal me. It may be that uh, he is forsaken healing from God and he's seeking healing from Eclepius. And this would be a great condemnation of the man. So here he is sitting out, provided for by these priests, Again, the priests um, who serve Eclepius, uh, some of them would have taken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, they, w- they would have had a, a somewhat of an obligation to provide for everybody. Uh, more than likely, they had set up a separate area um, for those who are invalid to come and to be, Um, those who are poor and did not have enough money to stay in the hostel or to get the hallucinogenic drugs, um, didn't wanna stay under the coverings, those are for the paying customers, but over here, you can stay and and you can hang out and maybe those who pass by you for healing will have pity on you and they'll provide for you. Um, And then maybe too, when we release the waters and they go and they do the stirring, you then have first right at this. You can go down, you can walk through the waters uh, while everybody's taking their hallucinogenic drugs Uh, and you can emerge on the other side. Now, nobody's going to be there. Nobody's going to be there saying Hygiea genocide. Nobody's going to make a proclamation of, well, you're not going to have the drugs to ease the pain or to do any of those things. Um, But it's likely that this man is there in this area looking to take advantage of that opportunity provided to him to just go down into the waters and to walk across and hopefully experience some kind of healing. But this, again, isn't his fate. He's just still sitting there with no one to put him in the water. And Jesus walks up and he says this question Do you, Hygeus Genestai? Jesus uses the words of the priest. What the priests won't tell him, what they don't think he's worth of their time, Jesus comes in and asks him Do you want to be well? Be well. Do you want Hygeus Genestai? He makes this proclamation over to them. Everything, again, that this man needs and is lacking, Jesus comes and says, Do you want to be well? Jesus knows exactly what he needs and offers it to him. And yet the man has done nothing at this point in the story to deserve it. Nothing. There's no proclamation at Jesus like we read in the woman of the well. There's no demonstration of faith like the official who walked away the moment Jesus told him his son would be healed. He's done nothing in this text to deserve merit from Jesus. Yet Jesus comes to him and says, do you, Hygias genocide, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another one steps down before me. He has earned nothing. He deserves nothing. He is still in this moment. Look at his response. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't recognize Jesus for who Jesus is and say, yes, I want to do it. In this moment, his faith is still in the pool to save him. But Jesus, in that hope, seeing, recognizing that hopeless condition, comes and says, I will heal you and tells him the great command, get up and walk. Walk. And so we've seen Jesus' incomparable knowledge. We've seen his impressive compassion. And then thirdly, I wanna say we see now his immediate power. Right then, immediate. Look back down at verse eight. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. There's no need to go down in the pool first. There's no therapy needed to regain his muscles. There's no other response but this man to, other than being healed. Jesus has the power to put all things right that were wrong. The very voice he used to create all of the universe, he now speaks healing into this man, and it is immediate at once. Jesus demonstrates his knowledge, his compassion, and his power to this man. So, what would be the natural response? We would expect this man to then naturally believe and accept life. But we got a little bit of a curveball, the story is interrupted. We have these unbelieving Jews kind of thrown in here. You see, they, instead of seeing Jesus' miracle, thus believing and then having life, they don't see, they don't respond with belief, and instead they seek to take Jesus' life instead. Verse nine, and once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Seeing this man healing, doing work, with his mat, they don't come and celebrate who had compassion on you, who is mighty enough to save. Instead, they take their legalistic understandings, they rely, rely on their own knowledge, and they say, what are you doing? You are clearly wrong. And we go into this story where they are tr- clearly trying to oust him. The man has a great response in verse 11, as he answers him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I'm healed. The guy said, take up your bed, and in the moment my brain fired onto those things that I had long forgotten, my legs started moving, and I got up, and I am healed. What else should I be doing? Of course I'm going to take up my mat. He told me to do it. He is the one who healed me. And so I'm sure he's running around, jumping up and down, exclaiming all those things. A crowd is drawing around him. And this is probably why Jesus withdraws because he's not ready for his attention to come at this moment. Uh, And so (laughs) this humorous thing kind of comes naturally where um, here now that the Jews have caught the little fish and find out there's somebody else not only carrying his mat, but healing on the Sabbath, let's go after him. And so they ask him, who's the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. And the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as a crowd's gotten there. And so he's left there healed, getting all this attention. Jesus doesn't wanna be revealed to the Jews in the fullness of this thing. So he withdraws, but not only with the, the, the compassion of Jesus to heal him in, in this life, Jesus has the compassion to want to heal him in the next life. And so Jesus goes and he finds this man. I think this is a, uh, this is a credit to the man because in verse 14, after Jesus, afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple. See you, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. How great of a picture of restoration is this? Even though this guy doesn't know who Jesus is, even though he doesn't know Jesus as a Messiah, uh, he knows that Jesus saved him in this life realizing and probably recognizing that he was a Jew, realizing that it was nothing of Eclepius and this worship of the God of healing that saved him, realizing it was this man, he then returned rightly to worship God the God of his ancestors. He goes to the temple to worship. And that's where Jesus finds him and says, yes, you are worshiping me for saving your life now, but I also have the power to save you and to come because in me, there can be life, life without sin. He goes and he finds him to proclaim to him that yes, I've demonstrated my power not just so you can get better now so that you can know I have the power to give life eternally. Jesus seeks to reveal himself as the object of his faith and in this right life that now he receives as he believes and experiences life. In this right life, it is the calling to not sin. Sin is what messed it up in the first place. Sin is what was broken with this world and why he couldn't have use of his legs. Uh, Sin is what is wrong, and Jesus says, I've healed you from that, so don't go back walking like that. Get up here and walk, but walk without sin. I love the first thing that the man does. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Guys, I know who he is now. Now I can be a good witness of him. Let me point you to him, because he has the power to save but the Jews missed it. And this is why the Jews were persecuting him, verse 16, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, my father's working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's our point of application. Two points. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like the man in the beginning of the story. Maybe you're stuck in your sin. Maybe you're hopeless. Maybe you're trying to get your salvation from other sources, rules that you create. Maybe it's about trying to maintain a good enough attendance record or doing enough of good things around. Maybe you're trying to provide for yourself in a way that is hopeless because there's nothing that you can do to save you of your sin. Or maybe you've just never been presented with the person of the Savior and said, he's the one who can heal you. He can make you whole. Put your faith in him. If this is you this morning, then I would say, do you want to be healed? Do you want hygeia genocide? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to take your broken life and exchange it for a life abundant? Do you want to take the life that sin had wrought and and that you had death coming your way, an eternal separation from God? And do you want to change that in because of the work of Jesus on the cross? And you want to cast and look up to him and say, take my sins away from me and give me life. If that is you this morning, then this could be the day of salvation. Or maybe you're like the man at the end of the story. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saved, you're healed, Maybe you've already received the command to get up and walk and now you're supposed to go and you're supposed to tell all of those about the man who healed you. If this is you in the in this story, then I would say to you, see, you're well, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus knows you. Jesus showed compassion to you. Jesus demonstrated an immense power before you. If you've believed and received life, will you go on from here receiving that life and walking in that life? Will you go from here walking in the newness of life or will you go from here walking like you were dead, walking back in the sin? So whatever it is, whether you need to look to Jesus to be healed for the first time or whether you need to cry out to him again, thanking him for the healing you've received and ask him for his diligence to continue to help you walk without sin, Uh, This is the time that I'm going to invite you to respond. John's going to come back up and he's going to play. Um, If you want to sing, great. If you want to stand, if you want to sit, if you want to kneel, if you want to come pray at the altar, if you want to come ask me or ask somebody else, what is is this guy Jesus and how do I have a relationship with him? Uh, Or maybe even you say, you know what, Uh, I need to do, I need to make sure that I'm walking without sin and I need a church home to hold me accountable to that. You can make that known. Or if you've had conversations with the Welcome Home team uh, or with Lance already, you can come, and we'd love to welcome you into this dysfunctional family. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, this is the chance to go ahead and do that.